decades, women and young girls have been told that sex was off-limits in proper conversation. But thanks to progressive feminist movements such as international slut walks, the naked protests in Nigeria, and the Free the Nipple campaign, womankind are finally being given more room to embrace and discuss their sexuality. Sex positivity has been deemed vital in the fight for equality and inclusivity. It provides an avenue for educational discussions, empowerment, and the elimination of oppressive and possibly even dangerous stigmas surrounding sex. Welcome to On Point, the Guidance podcast arm where we sit down and talk with the experts on issues in and beyond Loyola. In this episode, we're spicing things up as we dive right into sex positivity. We'll be looking into how sex positivity is being portrayed in pop culture and media, as well as how it should be maximized and properly introduced to women, especially young girls. Here to tell us all about it are Trisha Obanon and Kai Antonio, the two co-founders of Now Open PH, a sex education platform for the Filipino youth. So get comfy and listen close. I'm Una Garcia. Let's go on point. Welcome, Trisha and Kai. Hello, thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited. Um, so let's just jump right into it. Okay, uh, so as we can see all over social media and pop culture, the new wave of sex positivity has broken barriers that have long existed in the name of conservatism and tradition. Mm-hmm. So to start, what is the significance of sex positivity in women empowerment? Okay, so um, the significance of sex positivity as it relates to women empowerment, um, I think that sexuality and sex is like a really, really huge frontier for women's women's rights, women's empowerment, because like, I mean, this is this goes all the way back to like, you know, second wave feminism, but uh, a lot of women were we're taught that you know their bodies weren't their own for a very long time for for several decades um that their their sex their sexuality was something that they had to give to their husbands um after marriage and because of that like it really severely limited your options like you, you know you had to be a virgin you had to be married um otherwise you know no one will be will be there to support you there there you won't have a man to support you because at the time women couldn't have jobs they couldn't they they were not free in more ways than one like not just sexually but like politically and culturally women weren't free so when the sexual revolution happened and the one thing that was women's value at the time you know virginity purity it kind of went out the window <laughs> so uh sex positivity and, and and like i guess the sexual revolution has always really been big for women's rights because it taught women that they could be independent, um, that they didn't need no man, uh, whether that's for money or sexual pleasure. Uh, it taught women that really their body was their own and that they could make decisions for it and no one else, not even a husband or a partner, can make decisions for them. So I think that the sexual revolution and sex positivity really pushed women towards just like more ownership of their own bodies and um because of that it kind of also spilled out into other things like if we can take control of our own bodies what else can we take control over right and you know i mean sex positivity at its core is the idea that safe and consensual sex is a positive experience and that's just like 
what in a nutshell but there's so much more to it than just sex i mean you know sex positivity it's about centering like, like pleasure centrism in the sense now it's not about as trisha said like com- um, abiding by the ways in which society has said women have to be subdued to certain mechanisms of control it's centering on centering the fact now pleasure and that pleasure is something that everyone has a right to more than that it centers relations on consent it and most importantly i think the best thing about sex positivity is that it challenges harmful models of masculinity but i think one thing that we have to note in terms of sex positivity i mean it's beautiful this pleasure centrism the centering relations of consent challenging harmful models of masculinity but you know with all these combined it's really only a healthy sense of sex positivity when it is critical and by that i mean it's important to see that not everyone has the same um, starting point in terms of owning their bodies. There's not everyone has the same starting point in asserting consent. Not everyone has the same starting point in challenging um, norms and, and harmful traditions. And I think it's very important to consider that in terms of sex positivity. We can't just say like, okay, um, go out there and own your body, you know, Because for for and for some people it's possible, but then it's important, as I said, to be critical to the fact now the disadvantages certain people have in terms of um, the cultural norms that they have to abide by are different for everyone. Thus, this whole idea of being of sex positivity, of owning your sexuality, of owning your body, it's not the same experience throughout like different groups of people so it's important to be critical of that okay thank you for that i love what you said about sex positivity being critical and nuanced and we're gonna touch a lot more on that later on um but now that we've established that sex positivity is about reclaiming your choices reclaiming your body and all that let's talk about the scene today we all know that Uh, sex positivity isn't necessarily a novel concept, but there is much to say about how the conversation on sex has changed throughout the years. So what sets the millennial and Gen Z perspective on sex positivity apart from previous generations? What I personally love is really that critical element that Kai is saying, because I, I mentioned second wave feminism earlier, because that's really when, um, you know, the, the term the personal is political started gaining a lot of traction. Um, and at, at that point, you know, women were not allowed or were not socially allowed to explore themselves sexually and and be into sex. Otherwise, you know, they were sluts or whatever. But um so any any act that they did to rebel against that was considered empowering because it was already what like you know the rules of society they were going against it but now sex is a lot more open uh the conversation is a lot more nuanced because um a- any society that goes through changes it kind of goes through a pendulum swing so it goes one way um really really far we overcorrect and then we kind of bring it back a little bit so I think that sex positivity really reached like peak mainstream or something um, maybe a few years ago. And then that's when we really saw women talking openly about sex online, uh, posting nudes, uh, openly admitting to liking hookups and casual sex. And we really went one way with the pendulum swing. And then 
um, obviously society tried to catch up and a lot of men are kind of getting on board with the whole sex positivity conversation. It's no longer limited to women or female presenting individuals. But then this is also where we see how no matter how good a movement how good its intentions are or how helpful it was at the start that movements need to change and movements need to adapt because, you know, now that it's becoming more mainstream, then people are adapting the term sex positivity and and not uh, sometimes applying it very critically. You know, it's like, if I have sex, that's empowering. Um, Or it becomes like a choice-based type of feminism or empowerment, which isn't really the goal of feminism or any other collective movement. Um, While individual liberation is great, the choices we make don't happen in a vacuum. So even if the personal is political, you know, that has the choices sometimes that you make individually have far reaching implications, especially if you are openly promoting it on social media. Uh, So I think the sex positivity conversation has changed to almost a kind of like, there's like an anti-sex positivity movement now. Um, not not because these people are thinking that um, sex positivity is bad per se, but more like how it just several iterations or manifestations of sex positivity actually plays back into, you know, the patriarchy. It plays back into the male gaze. It plays back into the idea of submission or making your body more easily accessible to men or something like that. So um, the conversation around sex positivity has changed from... Um, Nothing, maybe like 50 years ago um, in the mainstream media to it's all over the place in the last five years to this kind of like reactionary movement of are we taking it too far? Um, Are we just saying that all sex, as long as you choose it, is healthy? Um, Or can we have more nuanced conversations? And I think we're in that period of more nuanced conversations. Yeah, you know, people have become more critical in the recent years and Honestly, although I don't agree with the hostility expressed in delivering the message, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that people have, like, there's a, it's a good thing that backlash has happened. It's a good thing that, you know, people have said what they think about, like, this, this idea that, you know, that, that, that all sex, as long as it's consensual and, 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 and of your free will is good. It's a good thing that people have said things about that because it's, and it's, this, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. And that's exactly why it's good because it's only really when you feel discomfort, when 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 the norms are shaked up, that you know you get this uh, uncomfortable, and that's when you know that change is happening, that you know that something is shifting because it's 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 unbalancing what is currently there. Um, you know, when Trisha and I started now open, there wasn't really much comprehensive holistic sex ed that was. Um, being talked about, being put out there, but now there's there's budding collectives, budding initiatives that are popping up left and right because of just how, as Trisha said, this conversation is shifting, and it's 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 creating this 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 idea that sex as sex positivity is essential, but what about it? is something that we have to challenge. What about it is something we have we could take on forward. And you know, as I said, I'm gonna keep going back to the idea of, of being critical because um, you know, that's really a point that I want to drive here that um sex positivity without questioning the status quo, sex positivity without questioning whether or not other people have the have the privilege to do what we what to do what other people can do. 
is not a sex positive it's not sex positivity that moves forward and that's what i'm so proud of with especially gen z now they've had this there's this understanding and there's this 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 will to really challenge what is so what has been said and you know they they're, they're not afraid they're pretty much like say that there's something wrong with what millennials and other generations have said no this is what it is and to really uncover to uncover and unpack the fact that there's so many things that we missed it's it's really it's it's a good thing it's a great thing even though you know it could be unsettling at times change is always going to be unsettling and you know moving forward and challenging the status quo and trying to get to a, a point where the pendulum is not exactly swinging too much to the left too much to the right somewhere where it, we can really somehow meet in the middle and where everyone can really just find a way to be okay both sides you know like there's that there's that sense of finding that middle that midpoint and um yeah i'm very proud of how gen z has been doing that in terms of sex positivity that's true and it's kind of become like a pattern that a previous generation would introduce this groundbreaking idea and then the following generation they don't necessarily have to completely oppose it but they kind of you challenge know challenge it challenge it or refine it or polish it Definitely. and i think that's that's really one of the amazing things about the continuous evolution of sex positivity and um, feminism and um you also mentioned this earlier uh, that social media and pop culture have been providing easy access to material involving sexuality. I mean, just last year, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's wildly explicit WAP topped the Billboard Hot 100 charts and was the center of pop culture for quite some time. And even Netflix's Sex Education also reached millions of viewers when it was first released in 2019. So given that, um, what are your thoughts on how pop culture portrays sex positivity today? Is there such a thing as too far or too unfiltered when song lyrics or TV shows display and discuss sex? Uh, I think that like anything, there's going to be good media and there's going to be bad media. There, there will be media that gets it right. So sex education, um, as you mentioned, is, is a really great show, honestly. Um, great lessons, great narratives, uh, and really accurate points because they actually have like sex consultants um, who you know they consult with to make sure that everything is on, you know on point that they're not promoting any like uh, you know they're promoting progressive ideas and and like you know health centered ideas as well. But there's also going to be bad representations in media where you know it kind of raises an eyebrow like um, Netflix also came out with bonding which is, I guess, more about BDSM than, like, sex in general. But, you know, BDSM is does kind of fall under the umbrella of sex positivity, the whole, you know, do what you want as long as it makes you happy kind of idea. But even in that show, they do not tackle it very well. There's a lot of misinformation, a, a lot of bad moves from several characters that are just completely brushed off. And, um, it, you know, these things are harmful, you know, it's it's not as harmful as something like Fifty Shades of Grey, but it's up there, you know, so you're, you're always going to have media that kind of rides on it because it's edgy or, um, you know, it, it's new and it's interesting and it gets viewers, but they don't have like the care or the responsibility to um, make it good and, and make it helpful. So, you know, 
I think that it's good that there's more coming out. Uh, I wish they would be a little bit more careful, but that's just really how things work. There's going to be bad representation, especially at first, while we're figuring things out. But the more that these come out, um, then the more chances we have of actually getting it right and, you know, having something that kids and, and young people can really look up to. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just to delve deeper into what you just said about bad media, there's a lot of focus on the act of sex. Like, like you said, WAP, you know, I mean, it's literally just sex. And, you know, the discourse of sex positivity, the thing with it is that it it can really, like as Trisha said, it, it goes in a pendulum. There's always going to be bad media. There's going to be good media. But like, you know, I'm going to drive the point again. And, you know, that when you focus primarily on sex and the different ways to explore it, yeah, that's easy and fun. And that's great. And then I'm saying that, I'm not saying that it's not essential. It is. But, you know, it's also important to think about the disadvantages and the advantages various people have and experience in relation to it. Because, you know, when you focus on just sex and, you know, I don't know, like a wet ass pussy and it, that's easy and fun and it, it, it's interesting and it's clickbaity and it's fun to look at and it's fun to hear it's fun to it's easy you know it's easy because it's 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 it's, it's something that's so apparent in our media but like i said when you think about for example like clitoral sex is the best sex we and without thinking of how for example women have had their clit, clit, clitorises their clits um removed in certain areas in the world how certain women have, like, as I said, female circumcision. You know, it's not the easiest convo to have. To think about disadvantages that other people have in terms of sex, of the experience of sex, you know, um, without, when you're, when, you're, when you're focusing primarily on just the act of sex and the ways to explore it. Uh, and I have been um, guilty of this. And, you know, in time, I have, in my studies and in, like, in, in the things I've done in my work, like I've learned that, that, you know, sex positivity without being critical, without thinking of the disadvantage that brings to other people. It's a privileged conception of sex positivity. Like, you know, I've been guilty of telling people to constantly just talk to their partner about it and to talk about kinks, to talk about things. And, and that's well and good. Although communication is integral to any functioning relationship, you know, to just talk about it is not necessarily possible for all people because the system where certain sexualities exist, it's still implicated in male-centric ideology. Not everyone has the privilege to just talk about it because they don't have the language, they don't have the, the skill set, the, the knowledge that surrounds consent, healthy, enthusiastic consent. You know, I feel like there's a lot of things we have to tackle before we could even tell everyone that you know it's important to just talk with your partner about it. As I said, to express enthusiastic consent, which is very important, and it's it's a it's a discussion worth having, but at, at automatically expect consent within a patriarchal society where maleness is generally understood to be the norm, you know, that's problematic. Now, some individuals are not equipped to have this conversation because they don't know the language surrounding the context, or the context, or like the, the the language surrounding consent. We can't just tell them that the sex they're having is bad and wrong on the basis of our informed ideologies, you know? Um, sex and sexuality will always be a subjective experience. And it's important that to understand that even while it's also a part of a subjective experience, it also exists within the political realm. So, you know, I think just as I said earlier in the podcast, like, you know, I'm very 
I'm very adamant in driving the point that um, sex positivity has to be critical and it has to include, it has to be inclusive and inclusive to a to an uncomfortable degree in the sense that you have to be able to radically include people who might not be able to think the way you do and think the way we we think about consent and and and, and talking to in conversations and exploring sexuality although these are very important conversations we leave out other people of these conversations when we when we are not critical about it so yeah when we're going back to pop culture there's a lot of focus on sex but you know it doesn't necessarily represent the fact that there are other people out there who might not even be able to see or relate rather to these representations of sexuality and sex positivity. Exactly. And on top of, uh, in the spirit of inclusivity, when we talk about pop culture, on top of it being very male-centric, very patriarchal, it's, it also tends to be very westernized and very western-centric. So I think people kind of forget about that when they start preaching about sex positivity. Um, so actually, I want to go a little bit more specific um, when it comes to pop culture. Um, I want to ask, what can you say about shows that place high school students or minors in highly sexual plot lines as they do in sex education and HBO's Euphoria, among others? What can you say about that? Um, I'd say that kids are having sex. Uh, kids in high school are absolutely having sex. So I, it's it's realistic. Um, maybe not to the level of euphoria. I don't know if it's just because like I come from a Philippine context and maybe I was a loser in high school, but I never went to parties. <laughs> I never went to parties like the ones in like euphoria. Um, they also have like extremely easy access to drugs, which is like ridiculous, I think, especially for a teenager. But I don't know. It could just be a different like social context maybe it is something really realistic there um but i can see how you know putting minor characters in extremely sexual situations especially when those minor characters are portrayed by decidedly not minor actors like this is why usually high school students in in hollywood tv shows are played by like mid 20s to 30 year olds like Glee was played by 30 year olds, you know? Um, so you have people who look old, um, but are playing minor characters. And then sometimes it creates this idea in people's heads of like, does this create some kind of weird attraction or sexualization of minors? Um, you know, like, especially if they really play up that sexual aspect and they kind of linger on it a little bit too long. Now there's an ethical question um that i think we can ask is it ethical to portray minor characters even if the people playing them are adults and that these stories are real you know people do have sex at that age but yeah i, I really think that hollywood tends to to, to 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 just like really focus on the sex part um because they they have sex scenes in these shows not necessarily to be realistic or helpful about it um but because it's titillating and because it's exciting and, and you know it gets reviews and ratings so there's a lot playing into this but there are ways to do sex scenes with uh, minor characters in a way that's you know sex positive sex education is a really great example 
you know, they have plenty of sex scenes, um, but they feel real and they feel important to the plot. They feel important to the characters. But then you have sometimes sex scenes in Euphoria or in, especially in Riverdale, which is terrible. You know, like they just kind of have sex for whatever reason. And it's not for plot. It's just look at these people having sex. So again, you, you got some good ways of doing it and you have some bad ways of doing it. Um, but uh, yeah, these are, these are already conversations that the, the youth are having about these shows. And I'm glad we're finally having these conversations because these have been problems for forever. You know, like we've always been casting older people in younger roles and creating this problem of, well, you know what? That 16-year-old looked like an adult and they seem to make decisions. So I'm going to apply that to the real world, even though that's not how the real world works. So yeah, just watching things critically really helps knowing that something is fiction um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you should go out and emulate what's on TV, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, like in, in a podcast episode that Trisha and I did, we talked about queer cinema and our guest for that um, episode talked about how film and media is really like a lens by which we view the world and understand the world. And first off, like adolescent sexual and reproductive health and rights has been ignored for so long. And this is why, you know, yes, there like this is another aspect of sex positivity. Now, yes, we talk about sex for adults and for 18-year-olds 18 18 year plus, but then we can't deny the fact that, you know, adolescents have sexual and reproductive health and rights, that they're going through a time in their life, they're going through puberty where they have so much questions, so much things they want to know. And the more that we ignore it, the more it becomes an issue, the more the, the elephant gets bigger in the room. And, you know, these representations of young people having sex in media, as Trisha said, there's a right way to do it. And it's not about like personal, personal opinion. I don't think it's about having to make it look raunchy and making it look, you know, as 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 sexy as possible, which I mean they might have to do because of like Hollywood, but um, you know, it's it's akin to porn where it's like, you know, it, it gives you this fantasy or it gives you this idea of what sex should be or what sex should look like, how sex should go, when in reality that's not how it goes all the time. And you know, in terms of pop culture representing young people having sex, I think it's essential. I think it's essential to have these representations of, of, of adolescents and teenagers having sex because, you know, it happens. It happens and we can't ignore that. We have to talk about that. But how is it, how do they do that representation? How do they perform that representation? Yeah, that's the question. It's not about, like, it's not just about throwing, like, okay, representation, kids having sex, sure. But how do you do it? And what do you portray? What message do you give out? Right? I think that's what's important. That like what to, to to really, as I said, be critical and to to to, to analyze like what is it that these 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 portrayals are are teaching? What is it that um, our kids are getting out of this? Because you know, sex scenes are fine between adolescents and teenagers, but the way it's portrayed and the way the messages that um, they give out and the lessons and the values that they teach is it coherent with or is it consistent rather with um, with, with, with healthy information, with um, ideas that 
are safe and don't impinge on the safety and freedoms of other people. Like these are things that should be asked and um, reflected on when looking at these things. Yeah. So what I'm getting from uh, what both of you said is that it's not, it's never actually black and white. You know, it's never, should we include minors in sex scenes in TV? It's never, should we um, introduce these concepts to the youth? It's not yes or no, but more so how, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So now that we're on the topic of the youth and sexuality, let's touch on an issue that's being brought up about OnlyFans. Uh, And for those of you who don't know, it is an online platform where models, social media influencers, and even average users can sell paid subscriptions to sexually explicit photos and videos of themselves. So OnlyFans has received criticism for enabling minors and encouraging girls who have just entered adulthood to upload sexually explicit content of themselves. In fact, it's even common to tag their content as hashtag teen or hashtag young girl. So what do you think this says about the culture of modern sex positivity among the youth, particularly among minors? This is actually a prime example of what Kai was saying earlier, where, you know, it's it's not even just about the sex positivity anymore. If we want it to be inclusive, it needs to be intersectional. So one of those things that intersects really with sex positivity is class and you know, like general ideas of sexuality, you know, male gaze is still very focused on younger women. Um, Teen is a very big category, especially for men, because they just want people who are legal for their own, you know, conscience, but just barely, you know, (laughs) just barely. And, you know, that is an issue. So before we even get into the whole um, you know, every sexual choice is an empowering choice. We need to address all of these other things first. We need to address the fact that um, men's sexual desire is bordering on pedophilic. Um, like it, they're conditioned to like you know, young young girls. Uh, so we need to address that first. We also need to address the issue of class, where uh, people on OnlyFans aren't just doing it because they like people looking at them. You know, that's one thing. But it's also because they want to earn money. And unfortunately, sex work, especially in today's digital age, is one of the few ways that women can reliably have income in a global pandemic when unemployment is at record high rates across the world. So what other choices do these young people have? They have debt. You know, they go into thousands of dollars worth of debt, especially in the States or even locally. When you go to college, you get into debt. Um, You need to pay bills. And sex work is something especially like only fans level of sex work is something that's easily accessible to anybody with an internet connection and, and a smartphone camera you know so it becomes really a question not really of choice because if the question is if these people had choices would they choose sex work now some people will say yes some people will say yeah this is the choice i've made i quit corporate a high earning corporate job for a high earning sex work job okay fair but there are some people who don't have that choice because, you know, they're 18, few jobs will hire you if you don't have a college degree, but you have bills now. What do you do? And like this has become a really big issue. I know locally they're trying to address this. There have been students selling nudes to kind of cover, um, you know, not just their own bills, but their family's bills who were unemployed because of the pandemic. So it is 
first and foremost, an issue of class. Um, so we can't even talk about choices yet. Uh, but, you know, sex work is one of the oldest jobs in the world. It predates capitalism as we know it today. You know, so it's always probably going to be there because of the money-based system that we have until everyone can have their needs taken care of. Then there will always be people turning to OnlyFans and other forms of digital sex work to get by. So do I think these kids should be in OnlyFans? Probably not. Uh, do I think it's uh, troubling that a lot of young girls before the age of 18 are already looking forward to doing sex work? Yes, that is a little bit troubling because it, I mean, again, it's one thing if they really, really want to do it. But when you're 16, you don't know what you want to do. You know, like it may look glamorous because, you know, that's you take glamorous pictures and you, you earn tons of money or whatever. But the reality is it's a lot harsher. And, you know, we, we have to teach children that sex work is a harsh situation. It's going to be difficult. But the reality is, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to end up in that anyway because of the lack of economic opportunities elsewhere. So, yeah, we have a lot to address with uh, sex positivity, not just sexuality. Uh, politics and the economy are also e extremely woven into, the, into everything, you know. Yeah, and, you know, I think more than just, like, issues of class, it's also issues of models of masculinity. It's, it's weird because I, I, it's something I think about a lot, where it's, like, the idea of, like, a straight woman looking for teenage boys doesn't seem so, like, popular as compared to, like, the teen category for women. It's really a patriarchal idea, I feel that feeds into how men, parang, I don't know what it, well, I, cause this is such an interesting question because for me, it's like, I really don't know how to address it sometimes because, you know, yes, I do understand that it's a class issue and that there are women that need the money. And yes, I get that. But at the same time, I feel there's something deeper into it that just is at the root. And yes, it is patriarchy. But at the same time, I think that patriarchal notion that drives, that boxes in women's sexuality, really. I think at the heart of it is creating better models of masculinity. If men didn't get away with so much or weren't taught by society and culture to get away with so much that women can't get away with, I feel like this wouldn't be as big an issue as it is, to be honest. And I think that's what angers me, really, the fact that there is um, this stark inequality between what women can achieve and what men can achieve. Like, I mean, think about it. It's so much, this whole issue of OnlyFans is so much more prominent with young girls. You don't have a lot of young boys going on OnlyFans, right? And I'm not saying they should, but I'm saying that there's, that's, that's an interesting thing to look at, where it's, it's fascinating, where it's like, you know, why is it young girls turning to sex work at this pandemic more than young boys. And you can see it, it's a stark view of how, you know, this model of masculinity, of there's this market for young looking girls. And that just really shows the, how crutched in we are or how closed in we are into this box of patriarchal ideas of masculinity. And yeah, I think that's honestly, they're at the root of it more than class. 
more than more other than class other than just class it's like it's really this harmful model of masculinity that is spread out across the world in different cultures and different um, reiterations I would say though that like obviously people turning to OnlyFans, you know, women have been going into sex work since forever. They've been going into porn since forever because of economic issues or other issues. But I I will say that one of the good things about OnlyFans is that at least it puts creators front and center rather than distributors. So it it really puts creative control in the hand of the model because like you're, you're the content creator, you're the model, you're the director, you're the editor, you're pretty much everything. And you know, this, this at least it, it doesn't force people the same way that industrial pornography has forced people to do things because there's a little bit more control now over the kind of content you participate in. So I would say it's better than in like the porn industry, um, especially if you go to a studio or if if you work with like directors separately as a model, and it's completely different as an OnlyFans owner. So at least they are not exposed to the predatory practices of the industry, but it's still troubling because like you're not even eighteen yet, and you're already looking forward to an OnlyFans like cool (laughs) you know like you're you're a child um there's so much to do and figure out in life and going into sex work is just putting you at risk of violence and danger and a lot of kids don't realize that because they think it's kind of glamorous a little bit so that's something that a lot of sex workers want to you know especially now with OnlyFans, a lot of the more veteran sex workers are just like look you might be doing this because OnlyFans is easy and convenient and it's great and we will help you. But this is a completely different world. It's not just about celebrating yourself and earning money from it because that would be kind of like the uncritical sex positive lens. But there are harsh realities that come with it that kids don't know about. When you bring up intersectionality, it really it really brings to light the fact that when we talk about minors or young girls in OnlyFans, it's always just the focus on the fact that they're there and not exactly why they're there. And it goes back to what Kai said about really being critical because there's there's so many layers and there's so much to unpack. So it just goes to show how the biggest error you can really make is to oversimplify this whole issue. Um, mm-hmm. But let's go back to the issue of age. Let's focus on that because if you focus on everything else, we're going to be here for like, I don't know several hours. So let's go back to the issue of age. Um, The easy access to such content has also raised debates on age appropriateness of such material. And in a viral video, you would actually see Cardi B herself does not allow her own daughter to listen to WAP. So let's talk about what age appropriate means. Uh, In your own podcast, Now Open PH, you have previously talked about being non-normative in terms of sex and sexuality. And this includes certain ideas such as being queer, polyamorous, and even kinky. So when and how should we start introducing sex positivity and sex education to the youth? And what are the right and wrong ways of doing so? Personally, I think the right age to teach kids is probably the moment they can understand words. (laughs) like vaguely understand words because sexuality um happens a lot 
earlier um, than we think. It may not be outward directed. Like a lot of people don't realize they like somebody of the opposite or same or whatever sex until like maybe like 10 or 11 or something. But inward sexuality, like masturbation, babies masturbate because, you know, it feels good. So they're just going to do something, right? Uh, So, you know, there have been lots of cases where kids are just kind of masturbating and they don't know what they're doing exactly. And some parents will take the direction of, hey, don't do that, you know? Um, that's wrong because it kind of creates shame around something that feels good. And then it confuses the child because the child's like, but it feels good and I shouldn't do it. So things that feel good are bad, you know, and it creates a lot of confusion in kids. So age appropriate education would be like, if you see your kid masturbating or touching themselves and they don't know what, like, you know, they have no clue what they're doing. They just know it feels good. Instead of telling them, Hey, don't do that. It'll be like, okay, so what you're doing is fine and valid, but uh, because of social rules, do it in your room. Don't do it in front of other people, you know, or sometimes kids will ask, so why does this person have a girlfriend and why does this person have a boyfriend? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes people like boys. Sometimes people like girls. Like there are ways to explain things to kids that they understand it. It's not overly complex, you know, and again, we underestimate children so much. Like sometimes... Like kids will ask something and be like, oh, okay, cool. And then they move on. You know, we, 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 we hype it up way too much because we feel like we need to protect them from the world. But, you know, they're like, they're humans also. And if we keep protecting them, then they're not going to learn. And that's going to cause some more harmful decisions in the future. So age appropriate would just be, you know, when you're young, teach them about really, really early age consent. Like, were you ever forced as a kid, like make beso to your tita, hug your tito and you don't want to and that that is not not really sex but it does teach kids about consent where look if you don't want to hug and kiss and make beso that's your choice that's your body even i as your parent cannot tell you to do that and that that really goes a long way in teaching kids that their body is their own and that nobody can override the decisions that they make for their own bodies and even as young as that like even starting with something so small as you don't have to kiss anyone you don't want to can really build a foundation for much like more long-term strength and independence and, you know, empowerment. So start them as young as literally possible. You don't have to tell them about the whips and chains at age three, obviously. I mean, don't (laughs) tell them about the whips and chains at age three. But, you know, as they get older, you can slowly drip out more and more information. And then by the time they hit their teens, then you can be like, okay, you know what? Sometimes people like to hit each other sexually, but consent is still important and blah, blah, blah. Like if you do it slowly, you will have built that foundation for them. And then when they get older, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll make better decisions and, and they'll be able to learn even more nuanced conversations about this without starting from scratch at age 15. You know, it's a lot easier to learn more complex things when you have the foundations down already. So as early as possible, please. <laughs> So yeah, like I agree with Trisha, na, you know, um, developmentally appropriate or age appropriate sex ed starts in the home. It really starts with conversations that answer questions that kids want to know. And I think it's the role of parents and the role of um, parental figures rather to also rather, um, it's the role of parental figures and parents to be able to answer these questions in a safe environment, you know? it's kids you know there's always a saying that like 
some parents who would kind of shun their kids' questions or not know how to talk to their kids and would hide under the facade of these kids need to be strong or these kids need or the, the conversation's too awkward, you know. Um, yes, it is pushing. awkward. It is awkward, but it's important. <laughs> and um, you know, the point is not the point is not for kids to feel awkward or to feel as though they have to be strong in this setting. Because I think they have to be safe. That's the point. And safety is going against the grain of awkward, going the, against the grain of like you have to be strong, mentally strong to um, and figure it out on your own. You know, um, and as I said, like you know, a contextualized sense of sex ed where it's like what a kid in New York or like a rich kid in New York will be learning about sex might not be the same as a kid in like Cagayan Valley you know and what I say what I mean when I say contextualize it has to be appropriate to the setting by which he understands she or he understands now like um when you talk to these kids you you you, you or, or really just any any person really when it comes to sex ed, it has to always be contextualized in the sense that it makes sense in the place and setting that they are in, in the place in life that they are in, you know? And yeah, I think ultimately the goal is not to tell um, people what to do, but it's to give them the correct information and to empower them to make their own informed choices. And that starts in childhood. That starts in early childhood. It starts in the home going against the idea that it's awkward and it's weird and how do I talk to my kid about sex and how do I talk to my kid about penises and vaginas. You know, I feel as though parental figures, ates, kuyas, titos, titas, even like parents, I feel like that really is a form of love to, 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 to go against that fear of awkward and to go against the idea, the normative idea that they have to be mentally strong enough to get through it on their own. You know, yeah. So. so, like riffing off of that, sex education uh, really works when it's multiple institutions and support systems. Like it, it needs to not just be from schools. It really needs to be from your own social circles and your own family, because what this early age-appropriate sex education does, it, it it not only does it equip children with like the knowledge and skills to, you know, make informed decisions it kind of strengthens their own, you know, independence, uh, their own self-reliability. They'll, they won't be dependent on others to make decisions for them. Um, it'll make them more self-assured and it'll increase trust between uh, the family and the child. Because if the child knows that they can come to you when they're in trouble, when the child knows that they can um, ask you for information instead of having to go to Google or porn or whatever, then it increases the trust that you know families have with their younger ones, and it creates closer relationships, and it it just allows you to have yeah a much better relationship with your family than if everything's just hush hush and like oh we we don't talk about that, you know it, it, it there's so many benefits really to early age sex education not even just in the realm of sexuality but even in the form of like relationships with people. That's really interesting because when you think of asking someone, oh, when should I introduce sex education to my child? And then you hear the answer as early as possible. Um, someone from a traditional background might be shocked. It, it can come off kind of scandalous because right. we're always taught, you know, censor this. Uh, when you're watching a touchy movie, close your eyes, cover your ears and all that. But if you really think about it, it, it makes a ton of sense because um, sexual impulses and just 
pleasure-seeking impulses. They're one of the most natural things that come to us. So you might as well learn how to manage those, how to approach it correctly from right. a young age. And just to add, it's not just about sex. Eh? Like mm-hmm. as we talked about earlier, it's about relationship functioning. It's about, you know, how to ex- how to understand your own identity, your gender identity, your sexual orientation, your gender expression. These are things that don't necessarily have to do with the sexual act. And it's still a part of sex education. So I think that's a misconception people have also of sex education. Uh, it's just about sex when there's so much more to it. That's true. And it's that misconception that really scares people from talking mm-mm, about mm-mm. it early on. Mm-mm, mm-mm. So given all that we've talked about, it's safe to say that the line between empowerment and inappropriateness can easily be crossed when sex positivity is met with a wrong approach. So as a kind of closing question, what are the boundaries that need to be set when we talk about embracing one's sexuality? And more importantly, how do we make sure that we're maximizing the benefits of sex positivity instead of turning it into an avenue for impropriety? I think actually we're kind of moving into a sort of sex neutrality type of um, mindset, or at least personally I'm moving towards a sex neutrality mindset because you know, for me, I'm kind of thinking as sex as like an act now, um, something that can be life enriching. But honestly, not all sex has to be, you know, sex can also just be sex, period. Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be extremely positive or negative, it can just be something. And I, I think it's the idea that sex is like this elevated put on a pedestal type of activity that is the problem you know (laughs) that that's part of the problem the fact that sex is this weird commodity that somehow determines your value even if it is a positive value you know it actually shouldn't have any inherent value on its own it does it doesn't say anything about you or or the people around you so i think how we can maximize that is just by you know being compassionate towards yourself and respect respecting yourself knowing yourself so that you can um you know what your personal boundaries are not the boundaries determined by society and not the boundaries determined by a movement learn really what you want and what you're into so that no one else regardless of which side they're coming from the left the right the sex positive the sex conservative it doesn't matter where they're coming from. You know yourself mismo, um, what you're willing to put up with and what you want from your sexual interactions. So inform yourselves, um, do your own independent research, uh, try to get as much information as you possibly can so you can decide on your own. And then never, ever, ever impose your own boundaries on somebody else. Like don't tell other people that your way or the highway, you know, everybody has a very unique way, uh, unique story, unique sexual orientation. So the things that work for you will not work for others. So when someone's telling you their issues with sex, always look at it from a very compassionate, empathetic lens, put yourself in other people's shoes and live your life, I guess, uh, without trying to hurt anybody. That's just the evergreen advice. (laughs) Um, For me, I think it's, more about like well that's where Trisha and I disagree I guess no I'm I'm always going to be a sex positivist in a sense now you know I believe that sexuality is at, at the core of our personhood whether or not you want to or we, whether or not you don't want to have sex 
um, I feel as though there's there's so many aspects of sexuality that that make a person who they are, and you know I think what I do agree with Tisha in terms of what she has said is really knowing your own boundaries in terms of in terms of how far you want to go with or how 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 far or how the opposite of far how far you want to go in terms of your sexuality and in terms of what you want to do with it whether or not that you know um something i learned i i learned a few a few semesters ago was um the decision to not have sex and decision or the decision to have sex are as equal as the decision to choose yourself in the sense now when you when you choose to have sex when you choose not to have sex when you choose to to think about to your think to yourself about like how how might how might I want to um go about my sexuality how might I want to control um the aspects of my sexuality in terms of how much I want to give out how much I want to leave for myself how much I want to give just to myself you know I feel there are big aspects of personhood what you do with your sexuality and the boundaries that you draw up in terms of um what you want in terms of what you don't want these are so important and are very integral aspects of really just healthy functioning all right well i guess it just boils down to the very basic but also challenging principle of knowing yourself and respecting yourself and also respecting those around you so on that note, I think we can say that sex positivity is certainly a step in the right direction. However, like everything else, it must be met with the right intentions and done in an appropriate manner. So thank you so much, Trisha and Kai, for helping us navigate exactly how to do that and how to ensure that sex positivity remains a source of empowerment, education, and equality. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank so you very much. much. That's all for this episode of On Point, the Guidons podcast arm where we sit down and talk with the experts on issues in and beyond Loyola. Special thanks to our executive producers, Kathleen Nuyap and Rieta Nido, as well as our producers, Daniel R. Garcia, Tatiana El Maligro, Bryce R. Ruby, and Carmela B. Masiglat. This episode was edited by Iana Luis Padilla. Our cover art is by Tiffany Koo and our theme music is brought to you by Vivid Productions. This has been Una Garcia. Thank you for going on point with us.